0: Welcome, everyone, to the final episode in this first season of What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's three tips for faculty development, with your host, Janice Palaganes, who is the Associate Director of Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs. Your hosts will return in a few months with useful tips and expert guests you've come to expect and enjoy from our show.
1: Welcome to What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. You're here with Janice Palaganis and
0: Peter Kahn.
1: Hi, Peter.
0: Hi, Janice.
1: So I am pretty excited to uh, welcome Dr. Roger Edwards, who is uh, our director. Um, of the Health Professions Education Program. And um, I just know that this is going to be a really great podcast because um, it just means that we're going to be able to spend time talking about things that all three of us are excited about. (laughs) So um, welcome, Roger.
2: Hi, Janice. Hi, Peter. It's good to be here.
1: Good to have you, and, um, you know, Roger, I was going to introduce you. I, I know you come from a huge variety of backgrounds, maternal child health, health professions, education, rehab, technology. I know you have this huge expertise in innova- innovations, and, um, and yet I realize I've never explicitly asked you how you got to be at IHP, and I would love to hear that.
2: Sure, Uh, that's a great question. I, you know, we make sense of our lives looking back, but we always know what they look like going forward. So looking back, you know, I started in human biology and my undergraduate degrees in human biology. And very early on, my undergraduate honors thesis was in healthcare organizations and organizational psychology and how people learn and do what they do in organizations. So very early on in my career, I began in this organizational culture aspect and, and how things change. I went on to do a Master of Science in Health Services Research, and that's where I focused on the rehab area and the technology and how new things, and that's where my diffusion of innovation work really came into play with Dev Rogers, who, you know, the creator of the theory, was my master's thesis advisor, and that told me that no matter what, I have to be involved in innovation in one form or another for the rest of my career. And then I spent time at Carnegie, after being that, doing that work at Stanford, I spent time at Carnegie Mellon in the Robotics Institute really thinking about in the 1980s, how people use their voices to operate robots and operate things. That's back when they, before anyone talked about it in the early days of voice recognition technology.
1: I didn't even know you did that, Roger. It's amazing.
2: seven years there, yeah. And that's where I first did a lot of the, the grant writing and living on soft money and that side of academia. And I loved it, but I never had the terminal degree. And I always had a strong interest in healthcare. And then I came to the Harvard School of Public Health for the Doctor of Science in Health Policy and Management that really brought together some of these themes, because I've always had an interest in in the context and the organizational aspects that come into play for engendering and implementing change in healthcare organizations across the board. And so my doctoral dissertation at Harvard was related to adherence to practice guidelines in the emergency department. So the quality improvement theme came through here and how those are adopted. And I was part of a large study. That was going, ongoing there. And, and from that, I've evolved different things related to maternal child health, as you've noted, um, alternative medicine at one time with, with, the, with Israel back in the 90s, and also work in, in terms of education. I began my work with the School of Pharmacy and the MPH program at Northeastern uh, and really looking at, and that's where I really got excited about faculty development and seeing how to improve faculty teaching other faculty. And that led to the work with the breastfeeding and, and you know again, working with clinicians and helping them be more effective as clinician educators and, and patient educators in their role and adherence to improving practice patterns. So the themes came together. So when it came time to an opportunity to help at MGHIHP, there was an ad for someone to teach the research methods class. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I'd done some online teaching before and I can bring together the themes of really dealing with the hard challenges of doing research in a messy world of education and bring to bear this this, this background. And that's how I started health professions education at MGHIHP. And I loved it. So I started teaching one class and that evolved over time to expanded roles to where I am now.
1: But it's not just one class. I mean, you bring your whole background and it makes sense that, you know, I feel like you've had, um, you know, Experiences in all the different pools, and and now you're kind of bringing it together in your position and what we're doing in the program. And I, you know, I think this is important for health professions students because they're typically practitioners who suddenly realize their love, or maybe they knew they had a love for education. And what you're seeing kind of reminds me of, I think it was Charlie Munger who who talked about how everything you should do should lead to something. And even though you probably didn't predict you were going to be the director of the health professions education program, I feel like all of it leads into what you're doing now. And I think that's amazing. And it's just, you know, one thing that I feel like I've learned from, you know, hearing about your background and other people's background. And I think it was the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't know if you're familiar with that book by um, Kiyosaki. And the one thing that I take away from, it is he talks about how if you can figure out where you want to be in the future, which is not often the case for everyone, but those people who are interested in teaching, if they can figure out what position they want in teaching and then figure out what's missing or what their weakness is in those roles, and then f- work in a position that would strengthen that weakness. So for example, if you want to be a physician and you don't realize, or you realize you're not good with people, then you take a job in sales for a couple years to just get that, you know, skill to get where you want to go. And you kind of did it inadvertently.
2: Well, actually inadvertently and, and deliberately back in the early eighties, I had to teach one of my responsibilities on that team, but the robotics at the VA Alto medical center with the spinal cord injured was how do you teach a spinal cord injured person to use his or her voice to operate a a tabletop robot. And so I did a literature look of how you teach adults to learn in this special thing, a special skill. And I came across Malcolm Dough's theory of andragogy back in in, in, from the early eighties. And I had to apply that and literally applied that theory of andragogy way before most people were even familiar with it. And it was driven by again, the need, There was a need to do something that hadn't been done before. What was I going to draw on to do that? And that was one of my responsibilities in that team early on related to that. So it it is a kind of full circle, like you're saying.
0: So Roger, you and I share a common position as non-clinicians working in healthcare-related organizations. And I wonder, given your experience working with all sorts of different, I heard, pharmacy, maternal child health, emergency department, alternative medicine. Have you developed internal set of stereotypes that you use to characterize different health professions and your affinity for working with them?
2: Quite the opposite. I've decided there's all types in every profession. And Mm -hmm. so the types transcend the professions. And I have found that um, you know, public health is a quintessential interprofessional field for me because it was, it was interprofessional before anything else was interprofessional. I identified that way because we always worked from the physician and the nurse and pharmacy and all the other different perspectives in public health, dietitians and so forth. So I have found that the secret is mutual respect, no matter what perspective you're coming from. So whether the and that respect can occur in any profession or be absent in any individual in any profession, you know, the presence and absence of it is there either way. So no, I don't think I have stereotypes. I do think that there are organizational cultures that matter. I do think an organizational culture will drive certain things of being openness or perception of scarcity or tolerance for mistakes and things like that, but that's not profession-based. That's a different, that's a healthcare organization cultural variable.
0: Mm. Well, now I want to go down that path. So what are the drivers of organizational culture that shape people's behavior?
2: I think a historical source of, is, a, is a factor. Where did it come from? And the legacy aspects of that, when you think of organizations merging, you know, there was a culture at the Brigham and there was a culture at the General before they came together in the 90s and became partners. And how did that get play out I mean that's a local example but I think that the US some legacy aspects I also think leadership will drive it leadership matters in terms of culture and what's expected. I do think there's a lot of evidence out there that how you handle mistakes, and is it a culture of permission is it a culture of forgiveness. Is it a culture that enables innovation or stifles innovation? And innovation can, can sometimes be helpful, can be not helpful. And also there's a maturity stage. When you're very starting out, you need certain skills. But as the organization matures, you need more processes and standard operating procedures to get the consistency and the fairness that you need across the board. So, you know, different aspects are appropriate at different stages of an organization's growth or, or stage of evolution or where they ever want to be. And so that affects whether, whether it's a, a culture that's effective or not. And it goes back to shared values, but differences and how those values get manifested to accomplish a common goal.
0: And what sort of the culture that you seek to create within the health professions education program?
2: I really want us to be we're all different, we all have different styles, we all bring different things to the table, lets us figure out how to make this symphony, uh, you know, sound beautiful as we do that together. And that's really the, what I wanna make sure. And there's the openness, people make mistakes, I make mistakes, others make mistakes, that's not the issue, it's what you do about the mistakes going forward that really matters. And so I wanna make sure the culture is like, okay, we try things. We tell our students, we're trying this new session. It may or may not work as effective. Give us feedback and we'll improve. So I think there's a culture of continuous quality improvement. I'm a strong believer in the CQI mindset of, okay, keep working on it. Keep working to the goal. But you don't you can't work in isolation. You can't just not try things because nothing happens if you don't try.
1: I can attest to that. I think, Roger, the thing that I admire the most about you is your ability to find people's strengths in a team and you just kind of know you gather everyone's visions and then you shape it into bigger vision and then you you just know where to place the gears so that the visions happen and i think that's just been amazing the way that i mean you are you purposely select certain people and and first and you have this ability of knowing what people's strengths are, and then motivating us. Because uh, I'll give you a good example. So, you know, you asked me to do the marketing plan, you're like, you should do it. So then I wrote it up. And then you were like, let's go with this plan. And I have to personally tell you, like, that was something that I did a decade ago. Like, I just don't, it's not a current passion of mine, marketing plans. And it's not, where I, you know, would choose to spend my time. But then you believed in it, and you asked me to do it. And then we saw how successful it is. And then it became like, just motivating in itself, like you did this initial spark, and then it just became motivating. And you had this ability to find that strength and just motivate me, at least to just do it, even though, I wouldn't have guessed I would have, you
2: know? <laughs> yeah, it's thank you. Thank you. It's teamwork. It's really listening. And, and sometimes the talents are hidden. In this case, it's not as hidden. It's, more, it's, it's pretty apparent that you'd be strong in that era. But it's a skill that you had that was more latent from your recent work.
1: Yeah. And I think you note that from certain people, I like, you know, BA is not naturally a qualitative. Uh, so BA White's one of our faculty and she's, you know, she teaches our qualitative course along with Claudia Rosu. And BA is, you know, most of her research has been quantitative and, and just dipping in qualitative. She just has a qualitative nature about her. And you just picked up on that. And she's this amazing teacher in qualitative research now. So and um, that's another example.
0: And so what do you worry about most in maintaining that culture during a time of uncertainty and change that COVID has presented?
2: You walk right into it, Peter. You just go in and say, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to, okay, the, COVID has created an unusual set of circumstances that have asked us to step forward and be resilient and if and try something. If it doesn't work, okay, abandon it, try something else. So I think what I'm afraid of is not trying. So I believe you have to get out there and try and put forward the effort. And then you know if you, you can't ever improve. So I think that the biggest fear I have is just not getting out there and trying. So I think that how to say this in, in a different way, the, it's important for us to be self-aware enough to say, okay, this is what I know how to do. This is what I need help doing, asking for help and working as a team. And that's what we've tried to do with this team. And that's where, you know, there are things that that Janice is really good at, but I partner her with this other faculty member or this other staff member. And together, they're even better than the sum of the individual parts to accomplish that. And and I do think that the IHP is particularly strong in its collaborative culture, unlike some of the other academic institutions that maybe one, you know, is, is more accustomed to seeing. There are other innovative places, but I think one of the strengths of the IHP is there is a much more collaborative culture than I've seen anywhere. And that is really an enriching place and it stimulates the possibilities. And I, and I think that then has becomes synergistic and so forth. So I guess I would fear being in a too entrenched place where I could not be a little bit creative and venture forth too.
1: I agree. And I think it's, you know, we just talked about organizational culture and what an organization can do for innovations. And I have never worked in such a place that was as flexible and that had like the ceiling is, there is no ceiling on innovations. I mean, you know, it's there, there are certain, there are walls that we have to follow, but, but it's like the flexibility and the culture just, I think made it easy for us to flex fairly quickly and be agile about it. There, there weren't, like, there wasn't red tape and, you know, all sorts of things that tend to slow people down. I think, you know, for us, our team was keeping the learners centered in our in our thoughts and our development, as long as it, it almost felt like as long as we kept them the center of our attention as we developed and flexed and created during the pandemic, we couldn't go wrong.
2: Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think the Institute was very supportive all the way up the chain and laterally at the Institute, there was a sense of you t- Talk about learner centered education, we will give you the room to implement learner centered education. The registrar's office and the financial aid office, and every part of the institute was on board with this customized program of study, customized learning, you know, the online and the on site when we could be on site and then virtual before COVID. All of those infrastructure pieces worked with the program to support the embodiment of this vision of doing doctoral level training in the case of the PhD, the masters existed before, but really take it to the next level of the PhD of learner-centered customized education while maintaining the rigor. And that's that's, that's exciting, that's stimulating and it's very motivating.
0: Well, okay, it is very motivating to say, let's try, let's learn from mistakes, but let's also acknowledge that mistakes hurt and particularly scholars, educators don't like to be wrong. So I wonder if you've had a mistake that particularly stung or things really messed up and there was a negative consequence.
2: Mistakes. Sure, I've had mistakes. Let me think about that for a minute. Uh, Let me see. Well, probably a mistake of trying to do too much of biting up more than I could chew, trying to grow too fast or do something too big and just don't have the infrastructure in place to actually implement it. So I would think the vision exceeded the capabilities and their unrealistic assessment of what is capable, what is possible within the hours of the day or the resources available. I say when the, the, the ones that sting the most is when you aim high and just can't get it off the ground would be the stuff that goes there. So I think I've become over the years much better at adjusting the vision to be what's
0: feasible. Do you wanna put some specifics to that example?
2: Oh my God, my specifics from that example over the years. Well, I think some of the work I did early on in technology and what the technology could do and what was possible when we try to create human service assistant robots that could help people. We could see the vision and we could see the example. So when I was at the Alto Medical Center and then at Carnegie Mellon, we really thought, thought about this is possible, but the technology couldn't perform reliably. And so those grants were great. We got them done, but they never got to the next stage because it was ahead of the ability of technology. Now, years later, voice recognition became phenomenally used. And we've seen that. So I think that the hardest part was to leave that work aside and say, I invested nine, seven, eight, nine years of my life in this domain. And it just is not ready. It can't go there. And that was very difficult to then say, I have to restart you know, a career path mm. in light of the fact that this just isn't going to work after that many years of investment.
0: I wonder, did you find quite unexpectedly when you moved on to a different project that some of those insights from the voice recognition project became useful for you in a totally different field? Oh,
2: absolutely. And what it taught me was how to better gauge the maturity of a technology when you go to apply it and what variables come into play. Uh, Even if you take something now like the virtual reality technology applied to education What's realistic? You know, I worked on a computer agent project at, at Northeastern where we were using a, an avatar basically to help with mother maternal education in related to breastfeeding and what parts of that project could work or not. And I that a project was much easier to work on because of the prior work on the robotics in terms of this is what's realistic, this is what's feasible. And I think that comes to bear now when we think about how to deal with technology. I mean, we all had some challenges related to how to use technology effectively during COVID in terms of remote interactions. And, and, and yet different things work in different ways at different times. So I think I, I learned about when to apply and when to have, you know, to think about, okay, what, is, what are the other constraints that come into play? So I think I had a much better understanding. The other insight I took from it is you have to be realistic about constraints and factor those in. And that doesn't mean that to know, it means, okay, these are the constraints, you know, the references made to walls and ceilings. Yeah, you still have to be respectful of the walls. And sometimes you can you can break a hole in the walls, but you still have to fact the fact that they're there and there are guidelines to follow. And you have, you know, imp- you have certain structure that can be supportive of advancement and you can't just tear down everything. You have to really work within certain structures to be effective is one of the lessons I learned.
1: Certainly in simulation, I feel like everyone gets so ex- like novice users get so excited about the simulators and forget about their true objectives. And when you, when you really think about what the purpose and meaning is, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's like a test trainer versus, uh, you know, a high technology mannequin or, or something like that.
0: Hmm. I do like that metaphor because I feel, particularly yeah. on this example of technology and education, some of the musings get very fanciful they were going to have a virtual hospital and any learner will just sort of, wherever they are, will put on yeah. the goggles and they can take care of anything. And it's it's so appealing. But then you think, how is that going to work? <laughs> Are we getting ahead of ourselves? Well,
2: the the low fidelity versus high fidelity applications. What applications really require high fidelity versus then cognitive overload from that high fidelity? Versus what's really useful? What are we trying to teach? So matching the technology to the need is also you know we saw that a lot over the years in different projects.
0: So what's next when we emerge from pandemic? Which I'm assuming we we will. Or does this set us up to does this loosen? Some of the foundations that allow us to break through some of the walls that were constraining us before.
2: I think it loosens the constraints, but not the foundation. I think people got actually more centered in the foundation about certain priorities and values during the pandemic, and then could say, "All right, can we get to that foundation? Can we build on that foundation with more creative solutions?" So actually, I think in some ways it affirmed. It stripped away a lot of things, so you had to really focus on certain things because every thought part of your life was affected by it. So I think that. It simultaneously opened these doors, but it reestablished and reinforced core values a lot. And so I think it's the, ideally, if you, if I'm going to be an optimist here, I'll say it enabled more pathways to achieve some really core values that sometimes can get lost with all the excitement and the noise and all the other things.
0: So what will it look? Like, I think the Health Professions Education Program is a clear example of very, before all of this, of a very forward thinking, as you said, customized, flexible structure. What's next? Where else can we go uh, with this type of post-professional learning?
2: I, I think we, it's, it's a recognition that People are living their lives and their education as a piece of their lives. That's one part. It fits into a portfolio of activities in their lives. I think the model of being able to stop and do a degree is just not as realistic in the modern era as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago, pick your decade. And, and I'm not sure it's even ideal, You know, if it ever was ideal, but let's pretend it was. It's no longer that way because the world is different now. We have access to information differently. Resources are different. We can learn in different ways. We don't have to memorize as many things as we used to because we have it at our fingertips. So how does that change what we focus on? How do we do with adaptive expertise versus procedural expertise? So I think it's incumbent upon any program to establish, this is what we are, this is who we are and whether we're a good fit or not. And so where does it go? It goes like, if you want this, we are a good fit. If you want something else, then this is a better fit for you.
1: I feel like the pandemic has strengthened what we already offer. Because our program is mainly online, we're learning what works and what doesn't work and how to how to still create high-touch environments online and and in the process the students are experiencing what they're going to need to use to teach you know the methods that they're going to have to use during during the pandemic and then Roger you've shared with me the quote that I just I just live by now which is the pandemic reveals all the weaknesses that wouldn't have existed in the next 10 years and and I think you know what we're seeing now in terms of problems with a clinical placements getting educators developed in their online teaching All of that is stuff that we need to start focusing on and will be focusing on, and our our students are struggling with that too, and the more we can work on that together and learn from what people are doing during the pandemic and figure out what are the best methods, uh, I definitely see that as a future direction.
2: I think the other thing we learned is we saw that things can happen suddenly you know, a COVID spike means the workload change of our students and they can't get assignments in. So how do we adjust for that? The flexibility. I think everyone learned a lot more flexibility. I think that will be, people will expect that going forward. I don't think you're going to be able to go back to certain things. And I think flexibility and multi-channel interactions are going to become the norm. And I think people just saw that it was possible and it became more expected.
0: I just want to highlight, it. I don't know if this is an example of what you're saying or a contradiction that we're talking about innovation, flexibility, multi-channel. And yet for the HBED program, the big development in the last few years has been the creation of a PhD program, one of the most traditional, stodgy, conventional ways to sort of confer knowledge. So I wonder how, do you feel sort of constrained by these academic conventions that we have to be giving out you know, fancy doctoral degrees, or do you see that? as a vehicle for being creative within these traditional walls?
2: The latter. I'm perfectly fine with a, a traditional degree of a PhD that meets certain standards. That is a structure of North Star that I'm very comfortable with. How we achieve that in this modern era and how we accomplish the rigor and how we accomplish the scholarship in light of these other variables is the creative part. But I do still believe there's a place for educational scholarship at the at the terminal degree level that we're that we're living toward now whether i you know 100 years from now i don't know but i still believe there's a place for that so for you know for the near future i still think there's a place for that now i think there's a broader array of places of how that can be manifested and applied you know there are a lot more avenues and circumstances that that can be applied in yes but i do think the concept is there so i don't see it as a contradiction i see it as a perfectly valid goal but then how to accomplish it along the way i don't believe in throwing everything out right now no peter
1: i agree with you roger i i feel like now is actually the perfect time to understand traditional structures and traditional research because We are going to, as a world, we need to start innovating because of all the different technology that's out there, all the different things we need to research, all of the different conditions that we have. You need to have the knowledge of traditional to figure out how to innovate and how to move with time. So I think more than anything now, we need more PhD researchers that understand that.
2: And I think it's applied. I I like to work in the applied area. There's a place for basic science research that has a 20-year horizon before it's applied. I'm just not, that's not my thing. I like applied research that's immediately relevant. So I recognize that society overall needs people who do that. That's just not where I like to spend my time. So you have to let people do what they like to do best and do that and respect the different roles for it. So our PhD is very applied in its focus. And that's, to me, very appropriate from a scholarship point of view. Others might say they want to do a different kind of a PhD. And there's a place for that too. So it's just not a matter of, it's an and, not or. Well,
0: I'm starting to crystallize some three tips from the wide ranging conversation because one thing that roger has, has illustrated is that all of our past experiences can come to bear on our future projects whether they're intended to or not but you can draw the connection forward and his array of educational and and, and work projects that think have really given texture and nuance to the work in health professions education so the the first thing I heard that I'm going to take away because it, it does contradict or goes against my own reductionism. Is that there are all types of people in every profession, but it's really the organizational culture they're embedded in that's going to drive their behavior. That, that may, and I'll think about that when I next time categorize physical therapists as very algorithm driven. That maybe it's not the profession, maybe it's the organizations they've been placed in. Number two, I, I like this concept of the culture of trying, how we're, we're I think we're all hesitant to, to make mistakes or to admit failure. And the way you reframed it, Roger, is very helpful to say, it's, it's not if we make mistakes, because we will, it's how you deal with it that matters, because they become the next step in the cycle of continuous quality improvement, because you learn from it and you apply it and you improve. And then you let everyone know This is an experiment. So I'm pre-asking your feedback so that we can make sure it it gets better. And then the the third point that I heard coming out of this conversation was being realistic about constraints to use your term, and you were talking about it in relation to technology, but then you really widened it to frame any type of innovation that we do like to get very creative and imaginative. And yet the walls are not there just to keep us tied to the traditional. It's there to give us a certain structure that we can build on. you have to understand those traditions, those four walls first, before you can create a new new lattice work within that. So it's uh, appreciating the constraints being realistic And letting them not letting that prevent you from trying new things, but letting them support the new ideas you're trying
1: to create. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Roger. This has been so much fun. That was a great
2: summary, Peter. That was a really that really pulled together a lot of themes from what we talked about. So that was great.
0: Oh, it's all your words. Thank you for listening to our podcast. What's your delta? MGH Institute's three tips for faculty development. We look forward to bringing you a fresh new season of content and hope you will tune into our podcast again soon. In the meantime, if you've missed any episodes, please visit our website for a listing of all our podcasts at the MGH Institute of Health Profession.